All of us remember that day. It's the first time we stepped foot on the sands of the Arabian Peninsula. Perhaps some of you arrived with one suitcase, others 20. Some of us had children in strollers, others arrived alone, not knowing a single person here. And an intriguing, unique, and mysterious city awaited us. We all stepped off the plane as expats, not knowing what to expect. There were probably certain things we faced that were new, and some, like myself, had to learn how to drive through roundabouts for the first time. Unfortunately, it took me about a year to figure out that the people on the inside actually have the right of way. Obvious to some, if you're new and you did not know that, that's my gift to you this morning. Look out for the guys on the inside. And how many times do we forget to have our fruits and vegetables weighed before heading to the checkout line? Maybe that's normal in your home country. For me, I still make that mistake, even last night. But some areas of life are a bit harder to navigate. We all face cultural stress from time to time. We're far away from family, far away from friends. The structures are not in place, and we're often lonely. Many of us are away from our spouse or kids. We're making different wages, working in an, a different environment. Needless to say, things can be difficult for the expat. But remember what makes it even more difficult is that as followers of Christ, our citizenship's not ultimately back in our home country, but in heaven. Remember who Peter's writing to here. He's writing to Christians, to expats, to exiles, some of whom have faced great trials, great hardship, being ridiculed, mocked, struggling, financially devastated. Perhaps they're losing hope. And Peter gives them instruction. And he gives us instruction. How do we live in Dubai? How do we conduct ourselves in our time as expats on this earth? Well, Peter gives us the answer. So if you have your Bibles today, please turn with me again to this great little book towards the back of your Bibles. You'll find it after the book of James, before Second Peter if you've hit Revelation, of course, you've gone too far. Turn with me, the book of First Peter. It's a book inspired by God, written by the Apostle Peter, and it has a lot to tell us about the expat life. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 13 on down through 21, and we'll be reading as we go this morning. I'm going to turn there to verse 13, and we'll see three things about how we ought to live in Dubai. Three things from Peter. First, is we're to live with hope. We're to live with hope. Second, we're to live in holiness. Holiness. And third, we're to live in fear. So hope, holiness, fear. Well, let's begin with the first way we are to live. To live with hope. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first word of this verse is key. It's likely that in your small groups this past week, you stopped at that word and wondered, what is that therefore referring to? Therefore. You know, whenever you see this word in your Bible reading, always stop. 
just stop there. You need to go back and look at what the previous text says. In this case, it's the passage that we've been studying the past two weeks. Remember, verses 1 through 11 is one sentence. It's one long, run-on sentence of doxology, of praise. But to sum it up, we saw in verse 1, since God has chosen you. Verse 3, since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Verse 4, since God is keeping an inheritance for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Verse 5, since God is protecting you through faith so that you won't lose your inheritance. Verse 6 and 7, since God is refining your faith by fire so that it will receive praise and glory and honor. Verses 10 through 13, since prophets have all predicted what's happening and angels are on tiptoe to see all of God's grace and what he's going to do in our lives. So we say, therefore, since God has chosen you, since he's given you new birth, since he's kept an inheritance for you, therefore, because of all that God has done for you now, verse 13 and 4, there's to be a response. In fact, here in verse 13, we see Peter's first command to us. You know, the imperatives of the Christian life always begin with therefore. You know, Peter doesn't begin to exhort the Christian expats until he's described and celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. You know, what God has done on our behalf always precedes what we do in response. When we confuse this order, things are disastrous and we end up with a theology of works righteousness instead of the grace of Christ. Now, what God has done on our behalf always precedes what we do in response. We don't do good works to earn God's grace. This is what we talked about last week. We saw that God is the one that causes us to be born again. He must come and wake our dead bodies. Now, we live in response to the new life. And when you read verse 13, the first command is actually at the end of the verse. It's a bit hard to see in the English translation, but the first command is, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those two earlier statements are actually participles. They tell us how to do this. They describe the process of what it means to set our hearts fully on the grace. I remember last week we talked about hope and we said that our hope in Christ is different than watching a cricket match hoping your team was going to win but not knowing if they would win, right? It's unknown. The future outcome of the game is uncertain. Well, that's not the way Peter's talking about hope. He's talking about a living hope. And as Christians, we aren't wondering whether God will do what he says. We know it. Because just as Jesus has been risen from the dead, we know then that he will indeed come back. Again, Peter tells us to hope, and he gives us some practical ways to do that in the verse. First, he tells us to prepare our minds for action. Now, some of your translations will say, or the footnote of the translation will say, gird up the loins of your mind. You're going to read that and go, I don't know where my loins are, and I'm not sure I want to gird them. But it's it's a cultural expression. Men and women all wore flowing robes in their day. They weren't conducive to running, weren't conducive to jumping or carrying things. And so to prepare yourself, you pulled together the flowing robes and you tucked them into what girded you, a belt or a sash. 
You would pull up the robe and stick them in the belt so that your bare legs were showing and you were ready for running and strenuous exercise. Now, when a soldier, when he girded up his robe, it indicated this soldier was serious about preparing for the life and death of hand-to-hand combat. Now, Peter is saying the believers must take the same approach to thinking as a Christian. Thinking thoughts according to Christ's righteousness isn't automatic because our minds have been steeped in this world. Peter says thinking like a Christian requires effort. If you want to be the kind of people who can grow, you better get ready for strenuous work because it's easy for our minds to get distracted. Now, Peter is saying you don't just give a little corner of your mind to the pursuit of God. No, you gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready to work hard. To set your hope fully on God is to set your mind fully on God. You're to fill your mind with the things of God. Well, how do we do this? Well, several things. First, we we input God's thoughts in our mind. We read God's word. If you don't know a place to start, maybe turn to the New Testament and look at the book of Matthew. Just begin to read about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you. If you don't have a Bible, please stop by our welcome table on the way out. We want to give you one as a gift so that everyone can have the word of God with them. We listen to preaching about God's word as well. We redeem our commute to work. We redeem our commute to school. Make your time worthwhile. If you're working out, redeem your workout. If you're doing the dishes, redeem that time. Use that time to hear God's word preached by faithful preachers of the word and not mere peddlers of the word. You can also download the audio Bible to have that on your mind as well. We also, we, we memorize God's word. As things jump out at you when you read the text and you say, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. I've never thought about it that way. It has gripped my heart this morning. Well, memorize it. Memorize whole passages of scripture, not just a verse here or there. No, what you want is to have God's word hidden in your heart so that it's mulling about your mind throughout the day. We also discuss God's word. It's good for you to be in community with other people. It's good to be in a small group to discuss the Bible. If you've noticed in your bulletin, we've also begun to put some discussion questions at the end of the sermon notes page. I want to encourage you to discuss the Bible at lunch, even here on Friday, to discuss the sermon, to discuss what you've learned with other Christians, with other people. Join together in the discipling relationship where two people or three people get together and open up the Bible and just begin to talk about it. Just read a passage. Talk about what it, what it says. Talk about what it meant to the people then. Talk about what it means to you today. Apply it to each other's lives. Pray through it. Also encourage you to read good books about God's word. Read books. Check out the bookstall after the service today. Find a book that'll point you to Jesus. You also see in the bulletin this week, and oftentimes we place a list of recommended resources, recommended books that we've specifically picked out, things that we think will be a blessing for your soul. Take a look at that list today. There's also a list of recommended websites with good articles and good sermons that we wholeheartedly recommend to you. And in all of this talk about pouring God's word into us, I encourage you to talk to yourself regularly instead of listening to yourself. There's perhaps no better medicine for your soul than to preach gospel truth, to preach the Bible to yourself. And we've mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, 
instead of listening to our constantly changing circumstances, you know, our feelings about our situation, our to-do list, our difficulties, things that are dragging us down, rather than being weighed down and just complaining to ourselves, kind of cut that off and begin preaching gospel truth to yourself. Remember what Christ has done for you on the cross. Remember the new life that he's given you and remind yourselves of these truths. Now, friends, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. But also a second way we're to set our hope fully on God is to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded. It's the image of not being drunk when it comes to spiritual things. It implies alertness and evaluating things correctly. Because you see clearly your mind isn't numb to intoxicating influences. And the opposite of sober-mindedness is what we call clouded judgment. Sometimes it's obvious, actual drunkenness. You're not making great decisions. I mean, nobody's gotten drunk and found the cure for cancer in their drunkenness. It just doesn't happen. You're not choosing wisely when you're drunk. And if you're using drugs, the whole point is to cloud your judgment. Now, some of us are drunk on drink. Some of us are drunk on power. Some are drunk on money. Some are drunk on relationships. Peter is saying a Christian who is drunk on this world is literally out of his or her mind. But as you read the Bible, who God is and what he's done in Jesus, then you're ready to think sober-minded, God-glorifying thoughts. Well, the great concern in this passage is that we're not to be moderate hopers, that we not be satisfied with half-hoping hearts. But we engage our minds with the hope-producing truth of Scripture that we guard our minds from the hope-diminishing causes of this world. So how's your hope this morning? Are you hopeless or are you hopeful? Are you filled with hope? And where is your hope? Is it in things of this world? Are you hoping your job gets better? Are you hoping your account increases? Are you hoping for this circumstance or that circumstance to change? Or is your hope grounded in the life-changing truth of Christ? Now, Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive today, and we are certain that he will return. As we saw last Friday, our hope is grounded in the past, secure in the future, and it is available for us today. Now, though we're expats in a foreign land, oftentimes we feel unsettled here. We live in a settled hope of future grace. So live with hope. Live with hope. But the text also says to live holy lives. It's the second way we should live. It's the second point of the sermon today. Believers live in holiness. Look at verses 14 through 16. Peter continues his description of the expat life. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Believers live in holiness. As Peter says, Obedient children are not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. See, as Christians, as those who are born again, we don't live the way we used to. There's been a change, a directional shift. See, as Christians, we are to be non-conformists. 
though some have misinterpreted what it means to flee from those passions. Now, back in my home country, there's a group of people called Quakers. Now, they're a religious group of people who do whatever it takes to avoid worldliness. I've been up to their villages and it's dangerous to drive at night because their horse-drawn buggies are only illuminated by a little candle or a glass lamp. They wore identical clothing, no zippers, no buttons, just hooks and eyes. They have no electricity. They farm with hand-drawn plows and horses. Their homes are adorned with sheets rather than curtains. All this is non-conformity. They have made a commitment to separate themselves from the world. Electricity and cars are considered wicked because everyone else uses them. But however, this insincere, however sincere this attempt is at holiness, it misses the point. The nonconformity we are called to practice as Christians is heart-driven, ethical nonconformity. It's not that all of our lives need to be different as if driving is evil because others drive. No, instead we are to practice the ethic of God rather than the ethic of this world. Well, why are we to do this? Well, he gives us the reason there in verses 15 and 16. He says, as God is holy, we are to be holy. Peter here is quoting right out of the book of Leviticus. This is the book where you stop reading in your read through the Bible in a year plan. We sometimes get bored because we don't know what's going on. We see sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But see, that's the point of the sacrifices. That's the point of the laws and regulations. The point is you should get bored. You should get grossed out because of all the blood. The repetitive nature of the book is the point of the book. See, sinning never stops. Death and sacrifice for sin was constant because men and women never stopped sinning and yet God's goal, God's level, His standard is our holiness, is His holiness. We are to attain to achieve towards that end. We see God as a high standard. If you had a sore in the book of Leviticus, you had to go outside the camp. If you had a bug in your pot, you didn't clean it, you broke it. You threw it away. If you had mildew on the wall, you had to destroy the wall. And if it spread, then you had to destroy the whole house. If you had a stain that wouldn't disappear in your clothes, you threw out your clothes. It was done. Now, holiness means to be set apart. It means to be cut off. Holiness means that God is infinitely above and beyond you and me. That God is off the holiness scale because he is the epitome of holiness. It's easy for us to get sentimental when we think of God as an understanding and kind uncle. But he is self-existent, self-sustaining, and self-sufficient. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like unto thee? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. It's nobody is like God. So what does it mean for us to be holy? I said that's something we ought to achieve towards, which ought to try to grow in holiness, but we can never fully achieve God's level of holiness. Well, this command doesn't mean that we have to be infinitely unique or transcendentally exalted. No, we can't. But we see in the Old Testament that if you give your 10% tithe to the priest in the book of Leviticus, the text says that your tithe was made holy. Leviticus also says linen, oil, pots were made holy. Well, how can they be holy? Well, anything that was put in the temple or tabernacle, anything put away at God's disposal for the exclusive use of God was holy. 
It means to be totally devoted to God. Holiness is a comprehensive concept. To be holy means to be holy gods. W-H-O-L-L-Y. To be holy gods. That no area of his life doesn't belong to him. No part of your heart is set apart from him. The tithe was holy because all of it was set aside for God's use. We can't be completely holy, but this is what we aim to be. Now, our growth in holiness is the theological word sanctification. We looked at regeneration last week, being born again. This week we see sanctification. It's the English word sanctify. It's built on a Latin word called sanctus, which means holy. See, in English, we don't have a way of turning the adjective holy into a verb. The word holify doesn't exist. But in the language of the New Testament, the adjective holy can be made into a verb, which means to be to treat as holy, to make holy, or it can be made into a noun, meaning the process of becoming holy, which would be holification, if such a word existed in English. But since it doesn't, we steal this word, and it's called sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy. But here's my point. Anytime you read in the New Testament any form of the word sanctify, you know you're reading about holiness. Anytime you read about holiness and growing in holiness, you're reading about this theological concept of sanctification. It's our growing in holiness. And God tells us that our standard for holiness, our standard in sanctification, is that we are to aspire to God's level of holiness. Now, the oldest argument in the world for defending sinful behavior is that, well, look around. Everybody else is doing it, so it must be okay. But see, God doesn't care what everybody else is doing. God knows what everybody else is doing, and he's concerned with what you're doing. And he tells us not to be conformed to anybody but to him. Now, holiness is not, am I better than the person next to me? You're not holy because you think of yourself as a nice guy compared to others in your office or in your family. You're not holy because your behavior is accepted or encouraged in Dubai. You might realize that a lot of behavior is okay in Dubai that perhaps wasn't okay back home. Now, one way to know you're justifying yourself is when you say things like, well, at least I don't blank like so-and-so. No, friend, our standard is not the person next to us. It's not our spouse or our friend, not someone else in Dubai. Our standard is God. I think it would be helpful to stop here for a few minutes and mention a few clarifying thoughts on sanctification. So let me mention four of them. Just four statements on sanctification. One, our sanctification must be driven by the gospel. It must be driven by the gospel. Another way to say it is it must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Two things go hand in hand. Driven by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't merit our righteous standing before God. No, God. No, Jesus earned our righteous standing before God. Jesus set us apart as holy, and we grew in holiness the same way we were saved. That is through the Spirit working through us by faith, by grace. No, our growth in holiness must first not be, let's try harder but to believe better. 
We need, need to hope in the future grace we have in Christ. We need to comprehend the dimensions of the love of Christ. We need to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross and let that fuel our growth. We grow in holiness not to earn God's favor, but in response to the favor he has shown us. Remember from last week, we can only grow in holiness if we're first born again by the Spirit of God. Well, second... It's driven by the gospel through the power of the Spirit. But second, sanctification is hard work. It's hard work. Now, I've just said this flows out of the Spirit's work in the gospel. We don't earn our salvation. And last week we talked about how God is the author of salvation from the beginning all the way to the end. That he causes us to be born again. But who does sanctification? Is it God? Is it us? Yes. God does it, and we do it. We have a role, as John Piper has described, we act God's miracle of sanctification. Well, here's a nice, succinct definition of it. It is the action by which we bring our feelings and thoughts and acts into conformity to the infinite and all-satisfying worth of God. Let me repeat that again if you're taking notes and want to have that with you. Sanctification, it's the action by which we bring our feelings, our thoughts, our acts into conformity to the infinite and all-satisfying worth of God. We bring together with God, it's by God's grace, through the work of the Spirit, but we have to work hard. All of God's people are obligated to sanctify our worldly minds, to mortify the sin of our flesh. Now, it's tempting for those of us who like to talk about gospel centrality, and we do. It's tempting for us to shy away from these commands and these imperatives and even warning passages of Scripture because we're so afraid of legalism. We're so afraid of this works righteousness. We're so afraid of putting commands on us that we start thinking, well, we're trying to earn God's favor. Well, we do want to be careful. We don't want anyone to think that They could earn salvation. But yet, the opposite extreme is that we then get lazy or we neglect the pursuit of holiness. We kind of let go and let God. Now friends, do you mortify sin? Do you kill your sin? Do you make that your daily work? Do you put guardrails in place in your life to kill sin before it enters your mind and heart? As the great John Owen has said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I also like Kevin DeYoung's quote in his new book on holiness. He says, it's one thing to graduate from university ready to change the world. It's another thing to be resolute in praying that God change you. How are you doing in this area? Are you working hard to kill your sin? Are you making it your chief aim to pray that God will change your heart to bring your sin out into the open? Don't hide your sin. Don't divert it. Friends, kill it. A good litmus test might be to ask yourself these questions. What do my friends and coworkers think about God's holiness when they see my life? What do they learn about God when they look at your actions and your life? 
Do they marvel at the way at the way they see you fight sin? Or ask yourself this. Am I part of the reason they think the word Christian is synonymous with the words self-righteous hypocrite? Well, even if we are among those who answer this question well, we need the third point here. The third thing about sanctification is that it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle. The battle's not over. So as a Christian, do we struggle with some of the desires and temptations we faced before we became believers? You bet. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we're instantly immune to the world. No, not at all. That's exactly why Peter has to write these words to a group of believers. Now, when you became a Christian, you didn't suddenly become perfect or unable to sin. Now, some throughout the centuries have incorrectly said that one can become perfect while on earth. You can work hard and attain this level of perfection. But it's simply not true. You know, when we read the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans chapter 7, we see that he's fighting this battle of sin. He says, I do what I don't want to do. He says there's this, there's this continuing battle inside. No, it's a fight. It's an ongoing battle. And the fourth thing about sanctification is that it's about the heart. It's about the heart. And some of us could say, look at my life. I've never committed X, Y, and Z. I'm, I'm pretty good. But holiness has to do with the things you do when no one else is looking. It has to do with the posture and attitude of your heart. See, it's one thing to fear man and not want them to think poorly of how you've just behaved. But when no one is looking, what are you doing? And even before that, what are you thinking about? It all starts there. That's why Peter started there in our passage. To discipline our minds. I mean, think about adultery, for example. Now, adultery doesn't happen in an instant. No one wakes up one morning living a holy life and just snaps his fingers and commits adultery. No, there's buildup to it. You start thinking about it. You let your mind linger on lustful thoughts. Maybe you look at pornography. You start feeding these lusts. You have inappropriate conversations that lead to inappropriate relationships. But it all starts in your mind. No, it's when lust has festered. It then conceives and gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Lust, greed, pride, these all start in the imagination. You start imagining, what if I had this guy's money or this woman's house or this person's spouse? You start lingering there. Then you start feeding these lusts, putting more time into it. Before you know it, they give birth to reality. Friends, don't go down that road. Plead with you, don't go down that road. Stop, run. If these thoughts have entered your mind, run away. Don't dabble, don't peruse, don't experiment, don't find yourself, don't test your resolve, don't mess around. Kill your sin. Cut it off, throw it away, do whatever it takes, mortify it, flee. 
Leave it behind. Don't let it get in your mind. What also ought to be said that simply checking off things on your moral checklist doesn't take into consideration the idols of your heart and the meditations of your mind either. I mean, some of us would love for me to give you a list today. It's kind of easy to give a list. I could give you a list of things to do to be holy. Read your Bible one hour a day. Throw away your television. Give away your money. Adopt an orphan. Now, we all like getting lists. Here's the checkoff lists. But friends, to grow in holiness is not a list. It means to value Christ over all things. It means to exalt Christ over every single area of your life. It's not a list. It's everything. Friends, it's everything. To come under the submission of Jesus Christ in our lives. And friends, we are to live in hope. And we are to live in holiness. We are to value Christ over all things. And thirdly, we see in our passage this morning, as expatriates, we are to live in fear. Hope, holiness. Thirdly, third point, believers live in fear. Look at verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter says we are to conduct ourselves with fear. You might say, well, does does that contradict what Paul says? He says in another epistle, well, God has given us not a spirit of slavery leading, leading to fear. Are these a contradiction? No, not at all, because we are to fear God, but not with a slavish fear. See, a slave is constantly wondering if they're going to get punished for their actions. It's not why we obey God. It's like that of a child for his father. Peter gives us here in these verses three reasons to fear during our time as expats. Three things, three sub-points here. He tells us first that God, who is Father, is also the impartial judge of each one's work. God is Father. He's also our impartial judge of our work. And your Father judges impartially according to one's deeds. So Peter says, conduct yourself with fear throughout your exile. Now we're justified by faith, but we are rewarded in heaven according to our faithfulness to what has been given to us. The father who rewards his children according to their obedience, the text says, does so impartially. And so we conduct ourselves in fear, but not slavish fear, but as one not wanting to disappoint or offend. A fear born in reverence, in a spirit of adoration, is not like a slave looks to his owner, but as a child looks to his father in love and in care. 
Now, if you compare him to your father, of course, that, that might not be comforting, especially if you've had a difficult relationship with your father. But consider here the holy and perfect father. His love is beyond anything we know, beyond anything we've seen, beyond anything we dare comprehend or think. This is the father we see Jesus addressing in John chapter 17. It's in that passage that we get a page from Jesus' quiet time notebook, his diary, where he approaches God the Father and he calls him his loving father. But having God as father doesn't give Jesus or anyone anyone else license to live as he or she wishes. No, we want to go forth in fear, in awe, in love of this father of ours. Well, a second reason that we're to live in reverent fear as expats is that you've been redeemed by the death of Jesus. Second reason to fear is you, as a believer in Christ, you have been redeemed. You have been ransomed from your former way of life. We call him Father because in his perfect love, he saved us. And we get here the image of a lamb at Passover. The only way they could flee is to faith. How? Well, it was utter foolishness. You had to take the blood of a perfect year-old lamb. You brought them inside your house for three days and you investigated this lamb. You watched the lamb. Their demeanor, their personality had to be perfect. They had to be blameless. It had to be a good, perfect lamb. Now, if you brought a lamb in the household for three days, what would your children do? They would feed it. They would pet it. They would give it a name like Fluffy or Marshmallows. The lamb would be cute. You'd cuddle it. You'd play with the lamb. But then on that third day in the dead of night, the father would take a knife and kill the lamb. God wanted the family to feel this. And the kids would cry out, there goes Fluffy. And the father would say, it's Fluffy or it's you. The children would would weep. It would hurt. Peter says that that lamb is just a prefiguring of the lamb of God, the unblemished, spotless lamb. Jesus was perfect in every way. The unblemished son of God, the redeemer, the ransom payment. Now, redeemed is a key word in the passage. To redeem means to purchase, release, by paying a price, a ransom, or to deliver by the payment of a price. The Greeks uh, use the word as a technical term, the paying money to buy back a prisoner of war. It meant you were turned loose from your former bondage. That's what happened to you when you became a believer. You were turned loose. The bondage of sin and death were gone. The chains fell to the ground. But you see, do you see the cost In the passage, we were redeemed, not with perishable things like gold and silver. How much does salvation cost? The cost was the precious blood of Jesus. It was life for life. The cosmic God of the universe had to die to pay for our sin against a cosmic God. That was the currency of your 
redemption. That we should reverently fear and be in awe of God because such an awesome price was paid for our deliverance from death to life. It was the very blood of Jesus himself. Well, the great Puritan Thomas Watson rightly observed that redemption was God's greatest work. He says, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. Cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, the shedding of blood. The creation was the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. What Peter is saying in this passage is conduct your lives with fear and awe of God because you know that God has redeemed you out of a sinful manner of life at great cost. The only response we can now have is to live in holy fear and reverence. Otherwise, we'd be like this story or illustration. We'd, We'd be like a girl, a girl who's kidnapped from her wealthy father. Imagine this for a moment. She's kidnapped. The kidnappers demand a huge ransom. And the father liquidates all his assets. He sells his house, sells all his possessions, all the way down to his wife's wedding ring. He brings all that he has to this appointed place, sets the ransom down in the field, and he walks away. Soon the daughter walks out, gets the ransom, takes it back to the kidnappers. And she puts her arm around one of them as she walks away, looks over her shoulder to her father, just laughing and hollering at her father, yelling the word, gotcha. And we would all say at that story that this girl has committed a treacherous act. Well, Peter is warning us against the horrible danger of trying to do that with the ransom of God. See, Peter says, this is absolutely appalling to not live in fear and reverence and awe and holiness before our God to do something akin to what this girl does, to laugh in God's face. No, we live in fear and awe because of the great redemption that Jesus Christ has saved us. Well, there's a third reason we're to fear God. The third sub-point here is that our faith and hope are the result of God's eternal plan to glorify Christ. Our faith, our hope are the result not of something drummed up 2,000 years ago, but it's the result of God's eternal plan from before time even began to raise and glorify Christ. See, friends, all history culminates in him. The Father knows the Son in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. And here Peter speaks of God's foreknowledge to describe his choosing and appointment, not of us, but of Christ, the Redeemer. God's purpose, even before creation, was that Christ would come, that he would die, that he would rise again for the salvation of all who were chosen. The astonishing truth in verse 20 is that God's eternal purpose in Christ, just just look at that for a minute in verse 20. God's eternal purpose is for your sake. You see that? We may be expat Christians in this age, but our hope is sure. 
We are foreknown with Christ before the world was made, beloved of God the Father who made the world and gave his Son for us. Friends, it is this God who has saved you. Be in awe of him today. Behold this Lamb of God. Be struck, be stunned by the grace that he has poured out through the blood of Jesus for you, for your sake. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, maybe this is your first time in a church gathering like this and you're just beginning to figure out what's going on here and what we're preaching. Now understand that Jesus himself says in John chapter 14 that I am the way, that I am the truth and I am the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Now there are not many roads to salvation. All religions don't believe in the same God, just different names. No, there are not many paths up the same mountain that in the end we'll all be saved and we'll all end up at the same God. The, the thought that God saves everyone isn't true as we've seen in this book. We've also seen that you can't do enough good works to save you as if by the end of your life perhaps your good works will somehow outweigh your bad works and maybe, just maybe, God lets you into heaven. No, friend, the only way to the Father, the only way to be saved is to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus, to trust that the blood of Christ was spilt on your behalf, to realize that you can't redeem or pay the ransom price on your own, that you depend wholly on Jesus. So friend, if you're still waiting, I encourage you to believe unto him today, to lay, lay hold of Christ by faith. He is the only one who can save you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, Jesus is indeed our only hope. Our Savior has showed us your love by pouring out his blood for us. Oh, this lamb that was slain wasn't one of the creation, but was God himself. Oh, we sing out today, what a Savior, what a Savior. What a Savior we have who took upon himself every last drop of our sin as he poured out every last drop of his blood. Oh, Father, help us to live in response to that. Would we be in awe? Would we live in reverent fear of you as our Father? who has given us everything. You have not withheld any good thing from us, but have poured out your grace for us. Oh, Father, help us to live lives of faithfulness. Help us through the work of your Spirit to work hard at holiness. Father, would we cut off our sin? Would we flee from unrighteousness? Even today, God, as we sit here this very morning, bring to mind our sin and would we sever it? Would we cling to Jesus as our hope? Father, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. May that be the song of our hearts today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.